Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Welcome to Space Junk. I'm your host, Annie Hanmer, and last month I travelled to Melbourne for the Moon Village Association's public forum on the moon, which I was asked to moderate. The event was absolutely fantastic and brought together some of Australia's best thinkers on the future of humanity's relationship with space. Over this and the next two episodes, I'll be bringing you the audio from the event. It is live, so you'll notice some audio quirks from time to time. Sometimes when you run an event, there's a sort of magic and a feeling like everyone present is experiencing something unique together. This was one such event, and I'd like to thank those who attended the forum in person for their insight, contributions and presence at what was a very special experience for all of us. First to the microphone was Thomas Gooch, who heads up the Office of Other Spaces and the Office for Planetary Observations. You'll then hear from Madeleine Bandersky, who works on the Moon Village Association payload team. Next, we hear remarks from Associate Professor Alice Gorman, a space archaeologist from Flinders University and an all-round excellent human, and Gabrielle Harris, head of Interchange, a company which specialises in organisational culture and culture shift. Okay, hello. You can hear me. Fantastic. Welcome, everybody. We'll get started. Thanks so much, everyone, for being here. Uh, this is fantastic turnouts, and yeah, this is great. How's the weather? Amazing. <laughs> uh, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting, the Jerry people of the Kulin Nation. Uh, I pay my respects to the elders past and present and emerging, and also to the Aboriginal elders of the other communities who, who may be here today. I also wanted to acknowledge uh, many in the space industry from years past who have worked away tirelessly without a national agency, and those people devote a lot of time, passion, and some of them are here tonight, Kerry, uh, Donna, and Alice, and now we have a space agency thanks largely to people such as them. Thank Rami up the front here. Uh, Rami's from Space Australia, an online platform for creating a community around space and sharing what's happening. He'll be tweeting tonight with the hashtag HelloEarth. So if anyone else would like to make a comment, you can, you can use that. Also, just want to say thanks to the uh, Space Association Australia, sorry, Australian Space Association, Peter and Ash, who are here tonight filming, so thank, thanks to those guys. If you do need a toilet, there's one over at the Art Centre, 
but otherwise welcome. My name is uh, Thomas Gooch and I'm the founder of Office of Other Spaces. We are a landscape focused company and we have expertise in landscape architecture and satellite remote sensing, so earth science. We are the regional Australian coordinator of the, of the Moon Village Association and we bring a landscape uh, sensitive approach to space. Now, this is because we're passionate about nature and nature actually extends all across the universe. Uh, and we want to go to a habitable planet. We would love the human species to do that. But we want to make sure we do it sensitively. And when we get there, we're sensitive to the landscape. And along the way, we don't cause mass destruction to other landscapes there, which is why we've created this event uh, to stimulate this discussion. So the Moon Village Association is a not-for-profit organisation established in 2017. As I said, we're the regional uh, Australian coordinator. They're building a moon village community on Earth prior to actually getting to the moon itself. So that's about creating community and addressing these questions. Culture. What culture do we take to the moon? Mining. How do we mine the moon? Should we? Uh, architecture. Robotics. Engineering. So if you're interested, you can find resources on their website through white papers and recordings from yearly symposiums they run or otherwise. Uh, and the Moon Village Association has a presence at UN COPUS. So they actually have a lot of input into shaping policy uh, in Vienna there. So get involved if you're interested. So welcome, everyone. It's a real delight to have everyone here after lots of planning and to have the amazing speakers. Tonight is around the real payload of sending a camera to the moon to live stream a whole Earth. We're making that happen. The project started. So everything we talk about tonight is in that context. But you also learn about the moon and the industry and what's happening through law and culture in that regards. So I'd like to introduce now Madeline Bedansky. She's the uh, Moon Village Association Outreach Coordinator. So she's heading up the communication of the payload from Melbourne. Uh, so, I'll leave our amazing speakers here for the moment. If Madeline, you'd like to come up? Thank you. Thanks, Thomas. Um, and I'd like to thank all of the other amazing speakers for speaking today, uh, all women panel, and of course, um, Annie, who will be moderating the discussion. So, firstly, it's important to note that this is the Moon Village's first payload and uh, it's run solely by volunteers that are institutional members, and we answered a call for participation to get involved in the project. It's um, speaking volumes, I think, for the community of the Moon Village Association and also space in general. And, um, yeah, I encourage everybody to check them out if you haven't already. So the MVA is being led by a project manager, Lisa, and uh, the project is currently nearly at the end of phase one, what we've achieved so far is really, really encouraging. The team has compiled a ton of research into cameras that would be suitable for the lunar surface for rovers. And um, we are looking at establishing which one is best for the payload. The research has led to institutional members in having discussions with a company called SEN, who will be providing the camera, which is fantastic. And we have a number of tasks being undertaken by the team, for example, creating VR. Uh, looking at real moon data, uh, science feasibility studies for the ongoing task of risk management, and this is comprehensive and being updated as the project evolves. 
recently, members of the MVA payload team attended a workshop in Japan, which was really positive, and the project passed MDR. Institutional members have also been in discussion with primers in terms of launching to touch base and discuss what a collaboration would look like, and we are still having those discussions. Uh, so the next step is to continue with these discussions, like what we're having today, complete further feasibility studies and research, and the ongoing risk assessment, and look at developing our outreach team further. So it's all extremely exciting and very humbling experience and project to be involved with and would be more than happy to discuss this further with anyone after the panel. So I will leave you in their capable hands and over to, I believe, Thomas. <laughs> Great. So there, there you go. There's an introduction. Um, we've all been really excited by tonight and thanks again, everyone, for turning up. Uh, yeah, the idea of a pavilion is to get together and have a discussion and to open up dialogue. And the speakers we've got here tonight in front of us definitely have some dialogue and something to say. So what we're going to do is give each speaker 10 minutes. Uh, we'll cycle through over 50 minutes. And then we're going to, at the end of that, have a discussion where we'd like to engage you all in any questions or thoughts that you might have and see what comes. We'll start with Alice Gorman, AKA Dr. Space Junk. Alice is internationally recognised leader in the field of space archaeology. Her research focus on, focuses on the archaeology and heritage of space exploration, including space junk, planetary landing sites, off-Earth mining, rocket launch pads and antennas. She's an associate professor at Flinders University in Adelaide and a heritage consultant with over 25 years experiencing working with Indigenous communities in Australia. In collaboration with NASA and the Chapman University, she is conducting the first archaeological study of the International Space Station and her book, Dr. Space Junk Versus the Universe, Archaeology in the Future, won the NIB Literary Award People's Choice for Nonfiction and Mulgra <laughs> John Mulvaney. So she's very accomplished is basically what. <laughs> so it is a fantastic book and, yeah, it's great to have Alice here. So thanks, Alice, and here you go. Thanks, Thomas and everyone. There are actually a few seats up the front here. If anybody down the back wanted to come and sit a bit closer or had tired legs or anything. So I'm going to talk to you tonight about the lunar surface. And I'm actually going to read my notes because I don't want to forget any of the connections that I'd like to make tonight. So since the first successful lunar landing mission, which was the USSR's Lunar 2 in 1959, the moon has become littered with human material culture, which is evidence of our engagement with the moon from many nations. And this is over 190 tonnes of material that includes things like landing modules, rovers, experiments, and just rubbish all lying on the surface of the moon. And now we have this incredible interest on commercial operators returning to the moon for commercial reasons and to maybe make bases or settlements. And people in the space community are talking, finally talking about all of these, the Apollo, Rover, Luna, all of these sites as a heritage that needs to be taken seriously. So this is obviously something I'm very interested in, but what I want to talk about more is two underrated features of the lunar surface, and these are the shadows cast by craters and by all of these abandoned human artefacts, and the dust that preserves the trace fossils of the famous footprints and the rover tracks across the lunar surface. 
So these shadows that are on the lunar surface are both tangible and intangible. They're cast on the surface by raised objects and they're also created by the texture of indentations into the dust on the surface. The interplay of these shadows and dusts creates a unique, and I'm going to, I had to get Donna to coach me in Italian, a unique chiaroscuro, which is basically the contrast between light and dark. So I want to look a little bit more about how this dust got to be on the surface of the moon. So the currently accepted theory of the origins of the moon are that about 4.5 billion years ago there was a collision with the earth and the moon was basically ejected. Then a little bit later than that there was a period called the late heavy bombardment in which the solar system was going wild, there were planets and asteroids and things bouncing all over the place and a lot of planets and other bodies were heavily impacted by meteorites and asteroids. And in this process, the, moon, the surface of the moon was pulverised, creating a thick dust layer and also creating little glass particles from these collisions. So there's a crater from this period called the Shackleton Crater, which is located at the lunar south pole, and it's 3.6 billion years old. One of the things that makes the Shackleton Crater interesting is that the shadows within it are among the oldest permanent shadows in the entire solar system. The shadows cast by the Shackleton Crater are 2 billion years old. And what this means is no matter how the moon rotates or the angle of the sun changes, parts of that, that crater interior are always in shadow. What makes this interesting is because shadows just like this is where we find volatiles like hydrogen and water preserved. This is where the water ice that everybody wants to go back to the moon to mine, this is where this stuff is located. Interestingly, we, I was thinking about whether we have permanent shadows on Earth and we don't have any craters left from this late heavy bombardment period. I think the oldest crater we have is 2.2 billion years old, the recently discovered Yarra Bubba crater in Western Australia. But shadows on Earth don't really work like lunar shadows. So the quality of these shadows is really different to Earth. First of all, there's no atmosphere that refracts the light. So this is what makes it possible for us to actually see while we're in shadow, like reading a book under the umbrella, your beach umbrella at the beach. On the moon, shadows are very, very dark and black. Temperature inside them falls radically. There, you can see a little bit because earthshine and sunshine reflected off that dust surface will cast a little bit of light into the shadows, but this is really only a feeble illumination. So I've been puddling about in the billions of years ago category, but I want to scoot up to the future to 50 years ago. 50 years ago, or a bit over 50 years ago, on the 21st of July 1969, Neil Armstrong descended from the lunar module and he said some famous words, but I'm not interested in those words. He also said something else really interesting. He said, it's quite dark here in the shadow and a little hard for me to see if I have a good footing. So he's actually stepping onto the lunar surface into something that had never occurred there before. He was stepping into the shadow of an artefact, the shadow of the landing module. And then he and the other astronaut had to actually unpack all their equipment in shadow in the dark. And what they discovered was if your hands or equipment 
were inside that deep part of the shadow, they were practically invisible. And you had to adjust your eyes as you moved between the shadow and the light. So this was a critical part in how they adapted to the lunar surface. But there was more too. So we've all seen pictures of that footprint on the moon's surface, the ridged surface of the boot. So one of the things that astronauts had to do was figure out what was going on with lunar dust. And there were basically two main theories at this time. One was Thomas Gold's deep dust theory, which held that the, the layer of dust might be so thick the lunar module would actually sink into it. The other one was the fairy castle theory of Van Horn and Hapke. And in this theory, which they um, came up with after looking how, at how the lunar surface um, backscattered light. It was, the lunar dust was a very porous structure that would collapse the minute you stepped on it, as we saw in the blueprint. So this is how they described it. So they said, if examined with a stereoscopic microscope so that the three-dimensional structure can be seen, the surface of fine powder is seen to consist of towers leaning at crazy angles and connected by lazy bridges, lacy bridges <laughs> and flying buttresses. Van Horn and I called these structures fairy castles to evoke an image of a mysterious landscape. And I think they did that, but remember, this is all at the microscopic level. So these very distinct qualities of light and shadow actually come from the way the light is reflected by the, the particular character of the fairy castle, castle dust structure. There's also a lot more going on with lunar dust. For example, as we now know, lunar dust is toxic if you inhale it. We know that it's extremely adhesive because it's been um, electrostatically charged by constant bombardment with cosmic rays and other high energy particles. So it sticks to things. It's very sharp, so it abrades things. And pretty much um, all of these characteristics mean that as John Young, who was the commander of the Apollo 16 mission said, lunar dust is the number one problem for returning to the moon. But I think, of, I think of this dust in all those photographs that we see of the Apollo missions, over 600 images and videos that were taken uh, over the course of the six missions. And I'm sure you've all seen them. So there'll be a, a, a sort of a, a grayscale surface and there'll be a piece of equipment or another astronaut and you'll see the actual shadow of the astronaut taking the photograph, um, which is still cast on the surface. So do you know these photos I've mean? I mean, have you seen these ones? So the... The astronaut is there, the shadow astronaut is there, but absent. And for me, it's really easy now. I look at those images and it's like that shadow astronaut is frozen in time. They're still somehow up there on the surface of the moon. But the one thing that we know is that there are, are neither humans nor human shadows currently on the lunar surface. But the shadows are still very active things. So across all of those lunar landing sites and all of the other places where humans have landed on the moon, the shadows have become an active part of the site. So the electric charge means that they jump around and move around as the terminator, the dividing line between day and night passes over them. And, the, and they're like sundials. The sites become sundials even though there's not actually anyone there or anyone moving around it. When I think of these shadows, I think they're like, they're like signs on the surface that we can read. And these signs can mean many things. So for people wanting to mine the moon, the shadows are signs that there is water ice there that is a valuable resource. For the astronauts, the shadows were signs of the nature of the dust and all the 
scientific speculation around what that was like. For lunar conspiracy theorists, the shadows are evidence that the astronauts were not there, were not ever there. But for the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is a lunar satellite that has been imaging the surface since 2009, the shadows are evidence that the Apollo landing sites are there because they can literally see the shadows cast by the artefacts on the surface. So I want to finish by reading you a quote from Junishiro Tanizaki's famous 1924 volume In Praise of Shadows. It's not actually about the moon, it's about Japanese architecture. But for me, I think it really evokes the emotional experience of engaging with the lunar surface, whether standing on it or remotely as we do. And, well, I will just, I will, these are the words of Junishiro Tanizaki. In temple architecture, the main room stands at a considerable distance from the garden. So dilute is the light there that no matter what the season, on fair days or cloudy, morning, midday or evening, the pale white glow scarcely varies. And the shadows at the interstices of the ribs seem strangely immobile, as if dust collected in the corners had become part of the paper itself. I blink in uncertainty at this dreamlike luminescence, feeling as though some misty film were blunting my vision. The light from the pale white paper, powerless to dispel the heavy darkness of the alcove, is instead repelled by the darkness, creating a world of confusion where dark and light are indistinguishable. Have not you yourselves sensed a difference in the light that suffuses such a room, a rare tranquility not found in ordinary light? Have you never felt a sort of fear in the face of the ageless, a fear that in that room you might lose all consciousness of the passage of time, that untold years might pass and upon emerging you should find that you had grown old and grey? Thank you. Thanks, Alice. Fantastic. I would now like to introduce Gabrielle Harris, sitting next to Alice, the founder and managing director of company Interchange. Gabrielle supports and advises businesses on strategy, culture change, learning and development, and ex executive coaching. She specialises in the co-creation of innovation. Sorry, she specialises in the co-creation of innovative yet practical solutions designed in response to the complex challenges faced by both organisations and executive teams. Gabrielle and her team design bespoke programs grounded in organisational strategy, yet delivered with creative content that speaks both to hearts and minds. Her work in this space has taken across Europe, Asia, North America and Australia to coach executive team members. Personally, really excited to have Gabrielle here tonight in the context of culture and what culture do we take to the moon because this can tend to drive everything. So please put your hands together for Gabrielle. Thanks, Thomas. Hello. Well, I think Alice kind of got this wrapped, so <laughs> absolutely fascinating and excellent. So as Thomas said, my name's Gabrielle. The organisation that I established is Interchange and um, where we focus is in culture. And Thomas approached me and said, would you be interested in uh, having a conversation about your knowledge in culture and how that might apply to space exploration? And when he said that, I said, I don't know what I would say about that. <laughs> 
Um, but over the last few months, I've been doing a lot of research and having some conversations with some really fabulous people, including those sitting next to me today. And um, I've realised that actually there's a lot to be said about what we know about culture and how that translates here and how that might apply as we continue to explore space. And in that research, I was thinking about uh, my background in psychology and how we can think of uh, organisations and how they formed. Uh, if we move from, I guess, thinking way back, you're probably more the expert on this one than me, but from hunter-gatherer to farmer. And when we moved into this farmer era and we had excess, we could start to trade. And that trading made us more successful in a way um, as humans. It allowed us to be able to have uh, stronger diets, be stable in one place. It certainly increased our lifespan. And over time, those kind of family businesses then moved into, uh, I guess, global trade. So if we think of the East India Company, whether you see it as the British or the Dutch coming first, different argument. Um, it's really fascinating to see how globalisation took a hold. And we started to look to commodities that we could trade and we looked to bigger and bigger and get more and take more and... We started a, I guess, what's now considered as more masculine traits of competition and uh, resource extraction. And then over years, we've continued with that in businesses now. Um, it doesn't really matter whether it's a localised business or a global business. We tend to have had a very strong belief that organisations, with the exception of not-for-profits, are about returning shareholder value. How do we do that? We continue to take more. We continue to get more, to mine more, to extract more. And that is how we actually continue to drive financial return. Financial return is how we connect our status in society. Now, that's, of course, not in every society. There's certainly plenty of society, human societies um, throughout the world still now that don't necessarily have those same industrialised commodity mindsets. But certainly when we start to think about space exploration many of those behaviours or ways of being and ways of acting and connecting are coming from those roots. So we need to start to consider how is that actually going to play out for us as we have more privatised exploration. There will be some further discussion later about the, the legalised nature of that because um, that's something that I've become really interested in trying to understand. What actually is it that will or won't prevent private entities from continuing to explore without regulation. We can look to some recent activity by Musk, who has, who has, as I'm sure many of you here would know, uh, demonstrated more of a connection or a commitment to space exploration through SpaceX and shooting things like cars into space. And it's, it's fascinating, I think, to consider, now that we're moving to more privatised models, what is that actually going to look like for us? How is that going to be protected in the longer term if we don't consider what are the aspects that make up culture now and how will that translate later? Goldman Sachs, I think it was in 2017 or 2018, actually put it out there that the first trillionaire will be the person that mines an asteroid and that thinking came from the basis of platinum. 
platinum's worth a lot. You can potentially get uh, this possibility of landing perhaps an autonomous drill, some extraction. And if you could get that platinum back down to earth, that could be $50 billion is the predicted estimate. Now, that makes it very appealing for entities to start to consider, well, how can I make that so? And that's certainly playing out right now. Um, we have the, um, in some ways, privilege of working with some of the world's biggest mining companies and they're all on it. It's becoming more of a likelihood than it is something that was psychologically very impossible to consider not that long ago. Rio Tinto has recently formed an association with the Australian Space Agency to start thinking about how can you use autonomous drilling and get things up to space quicker and cheaper and start to mine quickly. And what I think is going to be really important for us is to think about what makes up culture and therefore how can we use that thinking before we start just going and raping and pillaging what's in space um, but think about, sure, human exploration is a part of who we are. We're going to continue to explore. But how do we do it in a, in a way that's not going to impact the planet in the way that, well, impact, I suppose, a much broader entity rather than just the planet? And um, those two ultimate components of the system, so the governance, the, the legal components, the, the processes, the policies that we put in play, and the behaviour. And the behaviour that has led us to so much of the exploration historically has been competition, it has been, um, I guess, power, it has been money. Um, and if we want to continue in that way, we need to accept that we're going to do some damage. From a behavioural standpoint, we've got to consider what is the what are the behaviours that we are now starting to talk about wanting. Um, it's it's incredible to be a part of this panel today and see that it's all women and to have women who are thinking about forward-looking um, care for space rather than how can we take the, the most out of it. It's a real honour to be a part of that community. Uh, but I think from a cultural standpoint, what we need to start to talk about and consider now are those two very distinct but interconnected components, the system and the behaviour. And absolutely our, our legal framework will help with that. But the legal framework in and of itself is going to be determined by the attitudes or the beliefs that we have about that. And I'm, I'm really keen today for us to continue this conversation around what we think are the right behaviours, what we think is the right system to put in place that we can all get behind. Because um, space is owned by the public, it's owned by all of us. And um, it's particularly owned by the generations that are coming. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to have the kids here today to be part of this conversation. Uh, and I think more of that needs to happen. We need to consider how what we're doing now is going to impact the generations of the future. And we also need to consider how is it that we can think beyond profit and start looking towards meaning and purpose and consider that as part of our, our space discussion moving forward. That is it from me. Thanks, Gabrielle. Often a perspective that's left out in the space narrative, but a very, as you can see, a very important one.
You've been listening to Space Junk. This was part one of our live forum on the moon from Melbourne, February 2020. If you'd like to contact me, you can email thespacejunkpod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter or Instagram as at Annie Handmer. You can also support this podcast by going to www.patreon.com slash thespacejunkpod. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.